0: Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm going to be covering Dark, Season 2, Episodes 1 and 2. This season is a little bit shorter than Season 1, but the episodes are longer, so I think the runtime might be about the same. And as evidenced by the season finale of Season 1, we are introducing the idea of the future in this season, and I am... So intrigued about what we could be doing with that. We've seen three different iterations of the present and past. And so I assumed going into this that we were going to be doing another 33 year gap to the future, which we ended up doing. But let's get into this because I'm just so excited about this show. So while last season opened with an Einstein quote, this season begins with Nietzsche. And if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. It's a quote that often refers to corruption, in fiction, to a villain's start of darkness. But who among our characters is this quote meant for, or about? Does Jonas need this warning, or Claudia? Does it help explain Noah's motivation? Or could it be meant to tell the audience something more literal? After all, what is a black hole, if not an abyss? Quite surprisingly, to me at least, Season 2 of Dark opens not in 2019 or 1986. It doesn't even begin in 1953 or 2052. Instead, we find ourselves upon the summer solstice of 1921, bringing our timeline back to yet another 33-year increment. In the familiar cave system, we find two men digging out the tunnels, answering my long-standing question of who built these doors. One presumes that there is not yet any wormhole down here to disrupt their work. They're merely preparing for its eventual existence and clearly taking orders from someone in the future. I admit I'm a bit disappointed to discover that the tunnel is not as ancient as I hoped. From the younger of these men, we get that familiar phrase, Sigmundus creatus est, and one of the two men digging these tunnels is clearly more convicted than the other. Interestingly, it's the man bearing the full chest tattoo that we have earlier seen as a full back tattoo inked upon Noah, who is the one questioning their mission, not the other kid, who is, supposedly, a young Noah himself. My curiosity here is piqued by the obvious difference in these two tattoos. Like I said, this man's tattoo was upon his chest, whereas Noah's was on his back. That must mean something, and my assumption is that maybe it's akin to bookends. This man is the beginning, and Noah is the end. This man has his tattoo on the front, Noah has his on the back. Or else, maybe that's just my tinfoil hat acting up again. We'll be seeing a lot of it in these two episodes, and probably plenty more this season. The young Noah, and again, I'm not wholly convinced that this is the Noah we know instead of a similar-looking young man simply using the name before or after it passes on to or from the Noah we know, he alludes to a prophecy revolving around time travel. And we'll hear this mentioned again in these two opening episodes by a familiar but very unexpected source, but more on that when we get to it. Now, it's here that I do want to point out that while I have the sneaking suspicion that this young Noah might not be older Noah, and the show just wants to pull a switcheroo on me by tricking me into thinking that they're different versions of the same character, it might come down to the eyes. I had, until these episodes, half suspected that Noah could be an adult Bartaz, but upon closer inspection, Noah's got blue eyes, and Bartas has pretty dark brown ones, just like these two characters in the opening, as a matter of fact, just like this mysterious man who's lacking conviction, and this young man who is ostensibly Noah. And given the mysterious mans, it's interesting that it's you line. I think there's a good argument to be made here for a certain parallel to be happening. Adult Noah seems to be pulling young Bartaz into this conspiracy. For young Noah to be the one who kills him is very timey-wimey and poetic and seems like just the kind of thing that this show might do. Did I mention I'm overflowing with tinfoil level theories right now? Because I am. But no matter who this brunette man is, and maybe we'll find out eventually, Noah kills him. I think. The scene is honestly low-key ridiculous, given that the initial wound is nothing resembling a fatal one, but the guy seems to instantly die anyway. It would have made sense if the pickaxe had hit the guy in his spine, but the blade goes into his shoulder and he slumps over dead without even screaming. It's bizarre and suspicious, and I don't know what to think. Elsewhere, older Noah reads from his little book, meaning that this scene must be set sometime prior to when Noah gave the book to Bartosz. The writing in the book notes that the 27th of June 2020 is, quote, the beginning of the last cycle, which certainly reinforces the idea of a prophesied apocalypse. But what kind of prophecy are we talking about here? Is it something ancient, something religious, or is it simply something brought about by a time traveler presenting their knowledge to the people of the past? Whatever it means, our credits have changed. There's lots of new snippets of scenes to examine, and I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for anything especially interesting. In 2052, Jonas is dreaming about fucking his aunt, poor guy, and I double-checked, the actor playing Jonas is only four years younger than me and he's in his mid-twenties so it's perfectly acceptable for me to say that I appreciated this unexpected sex scene more than Hannah and Ulrich's in the previous season. Not that I feel it was necessary, but I guess someone over at Netflix disagreed. Anyway, Jonas wanders through the remnants of Vinden approximately 33 years after its destruction, and he ends up heading back down into that familiar bunker that we just can't seem to escape. Though it was presumably Claudia's hideout before, Claudia doesn't appear to have come back since Jonas showed up. Jonas goes through her things, which includes a set of cassette tapes talking about the apocalypse. She brings up a theory that stabilizing the God particle will allow her to go back in time and fix things. So let's talk a little bit about the God particle, bearing in mind, of course, that I am absolutely nothing resembling a physicist. The God particle is the popular name of the Higgs boson or the Higgs particle. Initially proposed in 1964, the Higgs boson and the Higgs field that produces it give matter its mass and weight. Its existence was confirmed in 2012, which was probably the last time most people heard anything about it, by the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Higgs and the other originator of the theory, Englert, both got Nobel Prizes in 2013 for their work regarding the particle. The name, though, comes from an entirely separate source, that being a 1993 popular science book written by a different Nobel Prize-winning physicist named Lederman. He named it the God Particle for two equally ridiculous reasons—one, that the publisher of the book wouldn't permit him to call it the goddamn particle like he claims he wanted to, and that he wanted to create and capitalize Lies upon a connection between the particle and religion. God particle, after all, is a much catchier name that will sell many more books than Higgs particle or Higgs boson. Physicists largely do not appreciate this nickname, or so I'm told. But on June 21st, 2020, it's six days before the apocalypse, and I'm sorry, Dark, but you got it wrong. The apocalypse had already been underway for about six months at that point. I'm mostly joking. Hannah is listening to the radio as she sits in front of a collection of papers, and it's here that I'm reminded of just how badly the events of 2019 fucked Vinden. So many people went missing within the span of, I think, just a few weeks. Eric, Mikkel, Jason, Ulrich, Helga, and Jonas. Two little boys, two teen boys, and two adult men, plus the discovery of an unidentified little boy's corpse. If I lived in Vinden, I know what I'd think. I'd think that Helga and Ulrich had been working together since the 80s, and that the disappearances of Mads, Eric, Mikkel, Jason, and Jonas were the work of both men working together perhaps as a part of a larger conspiracy. And perhaps that could justify both men going missing as well. If they were working with some kind of a ring, then perhaps they did something to get themselves eliminated. That Ulrich isn't being treated as a suspect until a new officer comes onto the case is just another instance of Vinden's police department being one of the most incompetent that I've ever seen. At Bartas's house, Bartas and Alexander look on sadly as Regina speaks to her doctor. Her hair has fallen out from the chemo, but treatment doesn't appear to be working for her. It's very sad. At the high school, a new officer named Clausen takes over the investigation into the missing people. Eric's dad isn't impressed and he gets a good zinger in after Clausen starts babbling about the parable of the blind men and the elephant, but Clausen is deeply suspicious to me and I'll get into my reasons why in a little bit after another new character has been introduced. Elsewhere, Francisca is trying to comfort Magnus, who's grown his hair out over the past six months, and honestly, it's a bit of an improvement, but he's just as shitty a boyfriend as ever. When Francisca leaves, and he doesn't feel like she's given him a good enough reason for going, he decides to follow her so that he can spy on what she's doing with her time. I haven't mentioned it yet this season, because this season just began. So let me say it now. I don't like these two. At all. Hate them. Ugh. In the woods, Katerina marches down a familiar trail. She's packed and ready to head into the caves, presumably looking for her lost husband and son. I admit to being very shocked by this development. I continue to be surprised by who Katerina turns out to be as a person, from emotionally neglectful mom to teen bully to now, apparently, an obsessed cave explorer. But as last season assured us, she never succeeds in finding Mickle, and as the next episode will tell us, she never finds her husband either. Or at least she hasn't by 1987. In 2052, Jonas approaches an enormous wall built around the destroyed power plant. Then he goes to the graveyard and offers us a glimpse of who died in the apocalypse. Alexander's grave is first, then someone named Justina, then Voller. Further back in the graveyard, Jonas visits the grave of his father, and then, sadly, Marta. And in 2020, the young woman in question meets up with Bartas to break off their relationship. Rather inexplicably, he accuses her of breaking up with him over Jonas, which is truly absurd. She tells him that he's changed, and he tells her that he's dealing with a lot right now, as if it's her fault that he won't talk to her about his problems, and as if she's not dealing with the unexplained disappearances of both her brother and her father, not to mention her mother's obvious decline in mental health. After Marta leaves, Bartas gets a worrisome text. This evening, it says, and it's surely from Noah. At the power plant we get confirmation that the apocalypse happens on the very day of the power plant's decommissioning, and we also get to hear the plan for all that contaminated waste from last season. The barrels are going to be buried beneath concrete, their radiation chalked up to other causes, and everyone's just going to walk away whistling and pretend that nothing happened here. At Hannah's house, Hannah pulls out Alexander's old gun and presses it to the underside of her jaw. I really think she's just being dramatic in this scene, as there's no chance that this gun, abandoned in the woods, left in a box for over thirty years, and it never once cleaned as far as I know could be relied on. But the gun aside, let me take a moment to remark on the other idiocy in this scene. Hannah apparently contemplates killing herself by shooting upward from beneath her jawline do not under any circumstances ever attempt suicide this way if you attempt to kill yourself this way it is very likely that you will not die quite the opposite in fact you are going to be in the hospital for a very long time both because you were caught trying to kill yourself and because you blew your goddamn face off with a gun and if you wanted to end it all before just imagine how rough your life's going to be now that you don't have your teeth your tongue your eyes and or your entire face but back to hannah She's pulled from her ideation by a knock on the door, and in comes older Jonas. He didn't die down in the tunnels, apparently, and he convinces his mother that he's her missing son. She ends up believing him, but I'm not entirely pleased with this development. I've grown very fond of Jonas of late, and Hannah is the absolute worst. Just the absolute worst. I don't want her anywhere near Jonas, either as a teen or as a man, and I don't trust Hannah as far as I could throw her. I wouldn't put anything past this bitch. I need Jonas to stay away. Speaking of jackasses, though, in the woods, Magnus watches Francisca bury something in the familiar box from which he retrieved money last year, and in the caves his mother is actively losing her mind. Way back when, in the beginnings of a fancy-ass church, we see young Noah talking to older Noah. And again, I'm not entirely convinced that these two are the same person at different points in time. But Noah's timeline, even if this young man isn't him, is already painfully complex. I can't be completely beyond a shadow of a doubt, sure, but I suspect that there's something extra going on with him. His scenes don't appear to be playing out chronologically the way everyone else's are, and it's making me wonder, does he have some access to another method of time travel? Is he somehow circumventing the 33-year rule? I feel I need to sit down and make a rough timeline of all of his scenes, trying to piece together what he's doing when and where it appears to fit in the chronological timeline of his life. The scene with Bartaz, after all, when he handed off the book, happened in the 33-year cycle involving 2019. But he's got the book back in this episode, in the 33-year cycle involving 2020. How is that possible? Am I misunderstanding something? Is this a clue of some sort? Or, gods forbid, did I spot a plot hole? I highly doubt that. Like I said, I feel like I would need to meticulously study all of Noah's scenes in order to figure this out, as if I have time for that. This is the kind of question that I'm just going to have to sit back and let the show answer for me, because I'm not going to study any show that closely. I have other things I need to do with my time. But another thing that i want to note in this scene just a tiny little thing that's probably nothing but i figure i should note it anyway is that young noah here bears a certain resemblance to magnus it's completely different noses and even the shape of their face isn't really that close but they have very similar eyes i also think it's interesting that noah talks about personal morality here which i quite like as it's something i find religious people really struggle with sometimes. The number of times I've heard that atheists are inherently amoral or immoral because they lack religion and therefore have no morals is truly shocking and sad and honestly really frightening. That so many people think morals come from old books and myths and organized religion rather than an internalized sense of right and wrong is infinitely terrifying to me. That so many people seem to think that the only thing that could make a person do the right thing is fear of brutal consequences and eternal hellfire is mind-blowingly petrifying. But while Noah seems to present the idea of listening to an eternal moral compass, he immediately discounts it by telling young Noah that he, older Noah, is young Noah's moral compass. It's certainly something, and it makes me wonder, are older Noah's motives different than younger Noah's motives in such a way that he needs to manipulate younger Noah into doing what he wants? Or is this younger Noah not the same character as older Noah, and so of course they're not entirely of the same mind, so to speak? In the woods of 2052, Jonas walks through some very frightening scenery when he hears a commotion. A deaf woman, who is clearly Elizabeth all grown up and apocalypse-hardened, is hanging two men who entered the, quote, dead zone around the power plant. The men accuse her of hiding God from them, and the lynch mob repeats the Sic Mundus Creatus S chant. I'd say it's obvious that either Elizabeth's meeting with Noah was more influential than we were led to believe, or else she's going to meet up with him and his cohorts again, and she's going to be an enforcer for the cult in the future. Because just like they were talking about a prophecy, so is she. The passage will open, she says, and they will be led into paradise. I have no idea if she genuinely believes this or if she's using this prophecy to keep the people of 2052 in line. And if taken literally, I have no idea how or why the portal in the caves would open again. Jonas does say that it's merely closed, which of course means that it can open, but how and when and why would it? Perhaps when the power plant is decommissioned, but that still leaves the why and the how. Cut to 2020's Elizabeth, making it quite clear that our two deaf girls are one and the same. Elizabeth and Peter are having a chat that clarifies, sort of, Charlotte's parents' identities. They died when she was little, and she never knew who they were, but her grandfather turns out to be Tanhouse. It's wholly unexpected, at least to me. At the police station, Clausen thinks Ulrich could be the abductor slash killer, and he seems to suspect that Charlotte is covering for him. He philosophizes a bit on the power of pessimism, which, even though I very much do live my life this way, it's not a trait that I like to see in a man tasked with rescuing missing children. And I came away from this scene very much cemented in my opinion that I don't like Clausen. And that's an opinion that is only strengthened by the tinfoil theory of mine that I'm going to get to in just a second. At Marta's house, Marta goes into Mikkel's room looking for her mop. Katarina's not there, but Ulrich's documents are, and it's clear that Katarina has followed in Ulrich's investigative footsteps. And Katarina has just set her daughter down the same path of discovery, whether accidentally or not. In an undisclosed time that I suspect is 1921, Noah discusses Bartos with a mysterious man bearing considerable skin damage. It's hard to tell whether or not there's a familiar actor beneath the prosthetics, meaning that this character could be any man we already know or else someone entirely new. Which brings me to my tinfoil. I posit that this person's skin damage is a result of the apocalypse. Elizabeth's skin is similarly damaged, though not to this man's extent. I think she and he, both Elizabeth and this stranger, Adam, were damaged by whatever happened with the power plant in 2020, meaning that this is a character who was in Vinden on June 27th, 2020. My first suspect is Clausen, who strikes me as suspicious whether he turns out to be this man or not. My second suspect is Alexander, purely because Adam expresses familiarity with Bartos. That could be a misdirect, of course. There are a small number of men capable of talking about what teen Bartosz has always been like, but there's nothing to say that this man has to be talking about teen Bartosz. Timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, he could easily be talking about an adult version of Bartosz that he's had years to get to know. But honestly, I do think it's Clausen. But before the mysterious Adam leaves, he gives Noah an unexpected task. Find the missing pages from the Triketra journal. And to think I didn't even know that any were missing. Though this does reemphasize Noah's lack of chronology for me. We've seen him give Bartosz the book by this point, this must have happened before that. I assume, I suspect, that this means that Bartos took pages out of the book and at some point gives the book sounds these pages to young Noah. But we'll see. In the woods back in 2020, Magnus finally sees who else is opening up Francisca's secret stash in the woods. It's our unnamed sex worker who must be given a name soon because Jesus Christ magnus storms into her trailer to confront her only to run away when he realizes what she's selling it could have gone worse but i worry for this woman is sex work like this legal in germany and does she really not find it necessary to screen her clients to find out if they're potentially dangerous before they enter her home she doesn't even lock her door i'm frightened for her honestly at charlotte's house elizabeth is startled to find a 1920s photo including noah but also adam and agnes too This confirms to me that Agnes is indeed married to Noah, or at least that she was referring to him when she spoke of her husband, and that heavily implies that I'm right about Tronti being Noah's child, which again means that Ulrich and Magnus and Marta and Mikkel and Jonas are all descendants of Noah. In Mikkel's room, Magnus walks in to find Marta traveling down the same path to insanity that their parents took before her, and in the woods outside the cave, Bartaz meets up with Noah. Are you ready? The latter asks the former, and then off they go. As far as I can tell, this means that either they have a time machine like Claudia's, or else that the wormhole in the tunnels is actually open again. But I feel like we'd know if that were the case, so they must have a machine. At the nameless sex workers' trailer, Valder emerges. He's not sleeping with her, he's picking up the truck with the nuclear waste. It appears they may actually be brother and sister, or perhaps step siblings. Call mom, he tells her, and at no point does he mention her goddamn name. What is this character's name? Help me. Someone, please. She has to have a name. In the bunker, Peter shows Charlotte the photo that Elizabeth found. It's dated 1921 and labeled Sigmundus Creatus Est, and there's no indication of why House had it in his possession, assuming that he did. It's possible that it was put there later, after he died. Around town... We see all our sad and shifty characters. Magnus is ignoring Francisca's calls. Hannah is contemplating Jonas's scars. Regina is slowly wasting away. Alexander is burying the contaminated waste in concrete. And Clausen is contemplating his case. And in 2052... Jonas enters the dead zone, wherein lies the power plant. He avoids getting caught this time, but that doesn't mean it's a safe situation. He could be executed for this if he's caught. And he's going into an irradiated area, to the point that he eventually has to suit up in a yellow jumpsuit that seems to be this season's version of his yellow rain slicker. I'll take a moment here to point out that I do enjoy the subtle use of Jonas's yellow theme in the almost exclusively muted blue and green and gray future. His yellow face mask is very sedate, muted to the point that you might miss it if you're not looking for it. But I like it. But we end our episode on a shot of what elizabeth is hiding in the power plant the god that the men she executed claimed she was hiding from them it's a swirling vortex of shiny blue light and black matter reminiscent of lava rock and as we move into our next episode jonas is fiddling with switches to try to get it to do something it turns into an enormous orb seeming to stabilize under the influence of these mysterious machines but there's not enough gas to keep it going for more than a few seconds jonas is going to have to find more In 1987, it's five days until the apocalypse. Mikko wakes up and is clearly having a hard time. It's his mom's birthday, and honestly, I think Inez handles this all wrong. The boy's sad, and he's got reasons to be. Even if you don't believe his time travel story, he does have a mom somewhere out there in the world, alive or dead, and he misses her. If it's our birthday, and he's sad about that, you put that shit down on your calendar for future reference, and you go out and buy a couple of cupcakes to celebrate his mom's birthday with him. If he cries, you comfort him. If he gets angry, you offer him understanding and space. If you need help affirming his emotions and teaching him how to work through them, you get him therapy, which you really should do anyway, unless you have a good reason to believe that his time travel claims are going to get him unethically institutionalized. Basically, I'm worried that Mikel might need more help than Inez is capable of giving him which shouldn't surprise me, given that he ends up killing himself. But the way she tries to deal with him seems especially callous. The past is the past, and now is now. It's a pretty shitty thing to say, especially considering that she thinks he's just an imaginative or confused normal boy. The past is the past, and from her mundane perspective, what she's asking him to do is essentially forget his family, which is an awful thing to ask of a child. But if you'll let me put back on my tinfoil hat for a moment here, there is room for this to be something different than what it seems. I'm not especially convinced of this theory that I'm about to offer you, but I'm just going to throw it out there on the off chance that it could be true or something close to true. What if the past is the past and now is now isn't just a bit of bad advice that she's offering? What if it's a mantra of sorts? What if it's her mantra? As far as I can recall, we don't know anything about her family or where she came from, and we've only seen her 80s in modern incarnations. Is there any chance that she too is displaced in time and that the past is the past and now is now? Is how she coped with being trapped in the 80s herself? I had a brief moment of insanity where I imagined that she might be the girl from 2052, the dark-haired young woman hanging out with Elizabeth, but I think it's safe to say that's impossible. They aren't any more physically dissimilar than some of the other younger-older actor pairings that we've seen in the show, but they have different markings, let's call them. Future Girl has a scar on her face that I doubt is going anywhere anytime soon, and Inez has a mole above her lip that the girl lacks. I don't think they're meant to be the same character, and I think that if we do see another version of Inez, she's going to be marked with the same mole. We're going to know her when we see her. At Claudia's house, Egon is visiting his daughter, and he's shocked to see Gretchen wandering around the house. More importantly, though, he wants to tell Claudia something, only to get cut off by the appearance of Regina, who has transformed from an adorable dork to a gussied-up girly girl. Honestly, I miss her previous look. But when attention returns to Egon, he's apparently lost his will to reveal whatever it was that he planned to reveal, and it's the Peter thing from last season all over again. Just spit it out, you guys. Even if you don't think your wives and daughters want to hear what you have to say, I certainly do. Granted, I think what he was going to say here isn't quite as important to the plot overall as what Peter didn't tell Charlotte, I think what Egon is trying not to say here is that he has cancer and he m- could be dying soon. At the police station back in 2020, Charlotte is trying in vain to research the mysterious Noah, and Clausen reveals that he thinks that disappearances have something to do with the power plant. He finds it very suspicious, apparently, that Alexander took his wife's last name, which is another little clue for me that he might be Adam. What is more patriarchal than taking on the name of the very first man created in Abrahamic mythology, while claiming to be the leader who's going to burn down the old growth of the world to facilitate new growth after the apocalypse? That he thinks it's weird for a man to take his wife's last name feels very fitting with that kind of thinking, and honestly, it's the thing that really made me start to suspect that Clausen could be Adam. They do have similar noses, I think. That could be Clausen's actor underneath the Adam prosthetics and makeup. At Francisca's house, Magnus storms in. Right in front of Elizabeth, he accuses Francisca of sex work and mentions a few items on the supposed menu, so to speak. Think the gods he has his back turned toward Elizabeth, or else I would be very worried that she could read his lips. That he does this in front of her is incredibly shitty, exactly the kind of behavior I expect from him. He shouldn't be doing this at all, honestly, and having this conversation in front of a ten-year-old girl is just vile, even if he doesn't think she can understand him. It's not like she can't see the look on her sister's face, after all. But Francisca insists that she's not doing sex work. According to her, she's not a sex worker. She's selling the sex worker hormone prescriptions, which is how her father used to pay the sex worker for her services. And please, I repeat, for the love of anything and anyone, would someone please, please mention this sex worker's name so I can stop calling her the sex worker. I am begging at this point. But Francisca does have an interesting line in there. The secrets aren't the problem, she says. It's the shit we all project onto others. And honestly, she's entirely right. We're all entitled to our secrets. Our business is our business, and it's up to each of us what we choose to share, and with whom. That Magnus doesn't trust Francisca's word or respect her privacy and feels entitled to spy on her makes him a really shitty boyfriend. I don't know why these two are together, honestly, and I really don't know why I've got a watch spare me from teenagers and their drama, truly. At Hannah's house, older Jonas breaks out the time machine. Again, I feel it's a misstep. If there's anyone in the universe who I don't want to have access to a time machine, that person is Hannah. I'd literally trust Noah before I trusted her. But Jonas says he's going to take her back in time, regardless of how bad I think the idea is. And back in 1986, Mikkel is reduced almost to tears by his mother's bullying. He decides to skip school, and who can blame him? At the power plant, Claudia discovers that the dog's owner is there to claim it. Except the dog obviously doesn't just look like Gretchen, she is Gretchen. And the woman claiming her is Claudia. Crone Claudia. Post-apocalyptic Claudia. She convinces her younger self that they're the same person. And the younger Claudia doesn't want to believe it. I'm just happy to finally have an answer on how the hell Gretchen managed to travel through time. I knew that damn dog couldn't have opened up those two doors down in the tunnels. Crone Claudia took her with Tanhous's machine, seemingly for the sole purpose of proving her identity to her younger self. Egon, meanwhile, is having a phone conversation with someone who I must assume is his doctor. He mentions something having spread, which I suppose means he's got cancer and that he's going to be dying very soon. Ulrich, and spoiler alert, Ulrich's still alive, tells him that he doesn't have much time left, so I'd say my cancer theory is right on the money. Back in 2052, Jonas is going after that gasoline. He creates a clever distraction and siphons it from a tank belonging to Elizabeth's group of survivors, and his bright yellow gas can is a very nice touch. He narrowly avoids being caught, but he successfully gets his gas. In 1987, Regina and Alexander have a date in the woods. She's wearing yellow pumps, and there could be something to that given the importance of yellow and its association with Jonas in the show, while Alexander wears white sneakers marred by a telling drop of blood, and that, of course, is very symbolic. They're talking about family and genetics and things handed down through the generations, and then they talk about love. Regina doesn't think Claudia loves her, she certainly never said so. And Alexander says he does. He loves her. In the future, Clausen interrogates Regina about Ulrich and about why Alexander took her last name. It's shitty, and Regina reflects by bringing up older Jonas and his room full of nonsense from the year before. He never did return to it, and so Regina kept all of his papers. Charlotte, upon rifling through them, is clearly losing her mind, and she abandons Clausen at Regina's house in her haste to get away. Back at the caves, Jonas leads Hannah to a spot where he says it's safer to travel. Safer than what other potential outcome, I dread to speculate. I think it's interesting that they don't run into Katarina here where is she? Has she gone home or is she elsewhere in the caves? Noah does say later that the caves are very labyrinthine, but are they really that complex? Can you really miss an entire person like that? But there's no time to think about that, because in 1987, Mikkel hears the telltale sounds of time travel emanating from the cave system that dumped him in the past. The noise stops before he manages to get inside, not that it would have helped much for him to run into older Jonas anyway, but Noah, wielding a knife, intimidates him into leaving the caves behind. It's like a maze in there, he says, which leaves me thinking about labyrinths, while Mikkel starts to speculate about God. Faced with the prospect of his imminent demise, Egon finally follows up with Helga. Helga's still in the hospital post-accident, and it's quite possible that he's never going to leave. He may stay hospitalized until he ends up in a nursing home, but before he clams up, he points Egon in the direction of, quote, the man with the rock, who's obviously Ulrich, and mentions a white devil, who is possibly also Ulrich, but possibly not. We still don't know what happened to Helga when he woke up in the wallpapered bunker, after all. If we're speculating on who the white devil might be, of course, then my money is on Claudia who now we cut to. She's showing the time machine to her younger self and explaining the time loop. You must stop Adam, she says, and how the hell is young Claudia supposed to do that? Crone Claudia gives her younger self some papers and some ominous words about Regina, and then she time travels away. Younger Claudia's mind is fully blown at this point, and then we're back to 2052. Unsurprisingly, Jonas's next trip into the dead zone is met with guns. Elizabeth and her group have caught him, and he's going to pay the price for trespassing. They hang him, but of course they don't use a proper gallows. For those that don't know, a hanging is not supposed to be a long, drawn-out process. You're supposed to drop the body on a rope such that the person's neck breaks and renders them immobile and unconscious, and they quickly die. But you have to actually drop the body for that to happen. Otherwise, the person strangles while fully conscious and mobile. And it can be a long process. A short drop hanging, the type of hanging that a person attempting to complete suicide might arrange for themselves, takes between 10 to 20 minutes, usually. But it can take much longer. There's a particularly disturbing bit in the Holocaust book, Night, that involves a botched hanging that takes, I believe, 45 minutes, and supposedly it's a true story. There's a reason we don't tend to hang people anymore. And Jonas here is being subjected to a short drop hanging. The beam he's forced to stand upon is kicked out from underneath him. And of course the viewer is not truly meant to believe that he's actually going to die, but given that the earlier victims of this type of lynching were not even dropped but raised, their deaths were incredibly inaccurate in a way that makes me think the shoulder-stabbing from the previous episode really was a woeful misrepresentation of how human bodies live and die. In any case, though, Jonas is not killed here but does earn himself a very nasty scar on his neck, not to mention a bullet wound in his leg from Elizabeth shooting him. Unexpectedly, the brunette girl appears incredibly sad about Jonas's execution, and I wonder what that's about. Does she have feelings for him? Have they been having a relationship of some kind since he's been trapped in her time? That seems unlikely given his Marta dreams, but it's possible. Either way, Elizabeth's decision to spare him is a relief to her, but it also makes her incredibly suspicious. Or so she claims. I remain a bit suspicious of her. In 2020, Charlotte breaks down over the phone to Peter. Her grandfather kept secrets from her, up to and including the identity of her parents. And I think it's quite obvious that this is going to be very important later. Who are Charlotte's parents? I have no idea. Here's hoping her dad's not Noah. In 1987, Egon tries to track down the man who abducted Helga. He still doesn't know that this man is Ulrich, but he learns that Ulrich has been in a mental hospital for the past 34 years, and he's established himself there. He's a staple of the place, and the staff apparently like him, though he's not allowed any real freedom, and he's certainly not allowed out of the building. Egon goes to talk to him, and he's pretty intimidated by Ulrich's bizarre attitude, because this Ulrich is a very different man than the one we knew in the previous season. All that impotent rage is gone, and of course it is. It would hardly have served him here. At Mikkel's house, Inez is worried when Mikkel comes home late after skipping school. He refuses to tell her where he was, and she says that it'll just be one of those days it's best to forget, which could be a tiny hint of support for my what-if-Inez-is-a-time-traveler theory. But Mikkel asks her about her religious views, and so she distracts him with a tree that she had when she was a child. And then we're back with Jonas, who's... In a big cage for some reason. It's a weird choice. His gunshot wound appears untreated, which one assumes would eventually kill him, but there's no time to worry about that because Scargirl comes in with her gun to menace answers out of him. Why, she wants to know, did Elizabeth spare him? And I'd like to believe her, but given that she almost immediately lets Jonas out and directs him to take her to the power plant, I kind of wonder if this isn't a setup. What if Elizabeth told her to do this? I don't know what the motive could be exactly, but Scargirl seems like she might be up to something here. In 1987, Hannah sees her husband, Mikkel, as a child, and is presumably forced to reckon with the reality that she married her lover's son, or put a different way, that she cheated on her husband with his own father, her husband being a man she knew as a child when she was a child, which is normal, but also a man that she knew as a child while she was very much an adult, which is not normal. It's really gross all around. Meanwhile, Claudia digs up a big hole in what I assume is her backyard. She's looking for something, something that her future self buried in the past. It's the time machine, which I think means we've seen the chronological last of Crone Charlotte. She's trapped herself, I believe, in 1954, unless or until the portal in the tunnels opens up again. Back in 2052, Jonas explains the portal to Scargirl. Again, I think she might be trying to get information out of him on Elizabeth's orders. But if she was hoping to have any kind of relationship with him, I think she's out of luck. Jonas steps into this sphere right before it turns back into a nightmare mass, and he's gone. To where? To when? Who knows? I think this means, of course, that Scargirl is going to be our primary character in the 2052 plotline, assuming that we're not abandoning it for now. She's the most sympathetic character within that time frame, that's for sure, and if she's being genuine about her motives in this final scene, she's having something of a break from Elizabeth's leadership, and that could prove very interesting. On the other hand, though, there's just one more thing of note that I'd like to mention before I wrap things up. There was a shot, in the season 1 finale, of a large sphere, just like this one, starting to form, except it was far, far bigger. And it was being formed in the air, above, maybe the power plant? Wherever Regina and Alexander were at the time. They clearly saw it, and unless that was a flash-forward scene to the power plant closing down, which it can't be unless Regina was wearing a wig in the scene, that means Regina and Alexander know more about the time travel than they're letting on right now. Even if they don't know that it's time travel specifically, there's no getting around the fact that they saw that fucking sphere. So where did it go? Did they know what it is? What did they do about it? Did it just disappear? I have so many questions, and they all come back to, what does that mean for them? Regina and Alexander specifically and what does it mean for the story at large it's a huge dangling thread and i'm very interested to know what it's all about my only theory at this point is that it might not have been the result of Jonas's attempt to destroy the wormhole in the caves and that it could have something to do with Noah's so-called ark it was after all a pretty gargantuan looking portal but i don't know i'm kind of at a loss but all in all this is a very strong opening to season 2 i am again, a bit disappointed by the reduced number of episodes. We're only getting eight instead of 10, but there are around 60 minutes long instead of around 45, maybe 50 minutes long. So our story is probably going to be about the same runtime, but it's just going to be structured slightly differently. It's very interesting and I don't know yet where we're going with this season. We're going farther into the future than we did in the previous season, and we're going farther into the past than we did in the previous season. And both of those are very interesting opportunities to do all kinds of interesting things. We don't even know at this point if 1921 is the beginning of this conspiracy. I feel like perhaps this is as far back as we're going to go, given that we see the construction of the tunnels in 1921. But there's nothing to say that this is as far in the future as we're going to go, especially given Noah's mention of the Ark and and Adam's mention, of new growth. My prediction, honestly, remains that I think what Adam and the, and the Sicamontus Creatus Est conspiracy are trying to do is genuinely create a new world, so to speak. I think that they want the apocalypse to happen, to purge humanity, more or less, in a very Christo-supremacy kind of way and that they're going to use the time travel to skip past the hard work of living through the aftermath of an apocalypse. They're going to skip into the future, into a new Garden of Eden that they're going to claim for themselves. And it's very villainous. If they try to make these people anti-heroes or anti-villains in the future, I don't know that I'm going to buy it. It does strike me as very, very villainous. And given its ties to Christianity, I don't know how I feel. But we do have the interesting implication at this point in the story that perhaps Noah isn't as on board with what is happening in this conspiracy as we like to think. And that couldn't bring us back to Agnes's lines in the previous season. Agnes specifically referred to her husband as not being a man of faith. Perhaps Agnes, as we saw her last season, came from a point in time after Noah left the conspiracy or started working against it, Perhaps Agnes is the one we should really be on the lookout for. Perhaps Agnes is going to be our more villainous character, while Noah moves a bit closer towards something approaching being a good guy. It's possible, but again, I'm wildly speculating here. So, I'm going to go ahead and take off my tinfoil hat at this point. That pretty much sums up everything I want to say about episode 1 and episode 2 of season 2 of Dark. Now, As I finish recording this, I am planning to immediately go and watch the next two episodes. And I can't wait. I really am so looking forward to all of the potential reveals of this season. I look forward to seeing which of my crazy theories pay off and which ones will leave me laughing at myself in retrospect. And honestly, once I finish this show, I feel like I'm really going to enjoy going back to those first few episodes of season one and noting the difference of where we end up versus where we started. Obviously, I'm nowhere near the place where we end up yet, but I'm gonna get there in pretty good time. And if you would like to make sure that I get there in good time. What you're going to want to do is head over to the Patreon, where for $1 per month, you get to vote on what it is that I watch from week to week. What I do is that I watch an entire 10 to 13 episode season of a show. Within the span of a week, I write all my scripts, I record all the podcasts, and then I edit them a little bit more leisurely. But the next week I start whatever new show you guys pick for me over on the poll on Patreon. So if you would like to have input into that poll, that is only $1 a month. And for $5 a month, You get not only to vote for what i watch you get to see me watch it you get to watch all of my reactions full length almost unedited not completely unedited usually but almost unedited so what that means is by the time that you're hearing this you can head over to my patreon and watch me watch dark season one and season two maybe even season three plus a whole host of other shows that i've watched in the past including midnight mass blind manor squid game uh you season one and just a long list of other things and of course if you choose the five dollar tier you can also help me decide what it is that i watch in the future if you would like to hang out with me on a live stream while i watch the show that is available as a perk to especially high tier patrons but all in all if you're enjoying this podcast i would appreciate if you could go to your podcatcher of choice and leave a rating or a review i don't care how many stars you leave i don't care what you say in your review just go ahead. Let the world know about the podcast. Just leave your feedback and maybe tell a friend about the podcast if you're enjoying it. Every little bit helps, and I really appreciate you listening. Like I keep saying, I really enjoy writing these scripts and making the podcast. Even editing the audio was kind of fun. So I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am, and I hope you join me next time when I cover Dark, Season 2, Episodes 3, and 4. Initially proposed in 1964, the Higgs boson and the Higgs field that produces it give matter to mass and weight. Nope. <laughs>